Hi there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where, hey, where's the music? Where's my usual introduction? Realty Speak listeners, this is not usual times, and therefore this is not your usual episode. This episode, number 28, is the lightly edited audio track of a live Zoom virtual summit with six amazing panelists that I moderated three days ago, Tuesday, April 7th. In addition to Nativ Wynarski and Eli Weiss, who were both guests on past episodes, there is Jason Frosch, Carmelo Milio, Brian Lovett, and Matt Walsh. What happens when you get two real estate attorneys, two accountants, an affordable housing developer, and a multifamily property owner manager in a room together? 90 minutes of masterful information that covers everything you, as someone that is either in or connected to the real estate space, needs to know about how to navigate this incredibly unusual moment in time. Recorded live from multiple locations around New York City, here we go. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining us this afternoon for the Landlord and Real Estate Professional of New York City and Beyond Virtual Summit. You are 300 strong, and we are so excited that you've decided to join us today. What our hope is is that we find you safe and healthy, and what our wishes is that you stay that way. Now, before I introduce our guests, I'd like to give a, give a shout out to the law firm of Cooker, Marino, Wernarski, and Bittens for suggesting that we do this today. That's why we're here. And also a special shout out to the four people that worked in the background with all the logistics. And that's Amanda, Craig, Jill, and Victoria. Thank you to the four of you for doing what you did to get us live today. Today, we have a very, very exciting program, and we're going to try to answer all your questions. But if you have a question that you feel is not being answered, then please use the chat function in your toolbar to send in questions. Craig will be monitoring those in the background and at about 2.45. And uh, also before that, at 1.45, we'll be doing a little Q&A. Now, I want to introduce our panelists. So... From the law firm, we have Jason and Nativ, and they'll be speaking on the legal side of things. And then from Joy Construction, we have Eli, and Eli specializes in the development of affordable housing, and he also has some hospitality assets, and he's going to be talking to us about that. And then from Tryon Management, we have Carmelo, and Carmelo manages the company's multifamily and multifamily mixed-use assets, and also condo and co-ops for others. And then last, but certainly not least, and probably a big part of the meat of this program, is going to be uh, Matt and Brian, and they're going to be, they're both from Witham and they're CPAs, and they're going to be talking about the stimulus package that was passed on March 27th, and they're also going to be sharing with us some of the programs that are available with the SBA and also the tax impact. Now, it's April 7th, and we've had seven days to collect rent. So I'd like to find out what's going on real time. And I'm going to call on you, Eli and Carmelo. Eli, why don't you tell us first what you're experiencing? Sure. So thanks again for having me today. And I hope everybody's doing well and staying safe. Um, I think the last two weeks of March, as we began uh, social distancing and then ultimately quarantining, uh, a lot of us were preparing for the worst uh, across the board. And I think what we're finding is a bit of a Dickensian um, you know, paradigm where it's a tale of you know, multiple cities. So, you know, we have a portfolio that spans community facilities, some office space, retail, affordable housing, market rate, and hospitality. 
I can tell you that our market rate apartments have actually performed very well throughout the first week of April in terms of collections, which is a great sign. It shows that you know people in New York City who are able to pay rent uh, understand the importance of paying their rent within the entire financial ecosystem and have paid their rent and collections are in the 80 to 85% range. Um, our hospitality assets took a severe dip the last two weeks of March and we saw occupancy, which is usually this time of year in the low 90s, drop to the teens. Um, but over the last few days, um, we're seeing that pick up again and we're back to about 50%, which is still off significantly, but we are starting to see some positive trajectory. And candidly, where we're seeing the most areas of concern right now are commercial tenants, specifically retail tenants, for obvious reasons. But you know, overall, the first week of April um, was a bit more encouraging than what we were expecting the last week of March. Um, but you know, every asset is every scenario here is case by case. Every asset has its own story. But I think the overall perspective is we're off to a decent start given the challenging climate. Carmelo, what are you finding real time? Yeah, I'd like to echo a lot of that. You know, first of all, thanks for, for putting this together. This was great. Um, hoping that everybody's just uh, remaining safe out there and staying home like all of us. A lot of what Eli say, said is, is similar in our portfolio. Uh, we do have a lot of rent-stabilized uh, apartments, and we are seeing a lag there with uh, rental payments. A lot of our market-rate apartments are are somewhat similar to, to last month as a portfolio at this time of the month, month over month from March to April, where we see a 24% decline in, uh, in rents that have come in. I think a big part of that is the commercial aspect of the of the rent. A lot of our apartment, a lot of our stores are mom and pop stores in Upper Manhattan and the Bronx, and they really are being affected uh, immediately. It's unfortunate, and we're we're doing what we can to to work with people, but there is definitely a decline month over month. We don't know. What this will say, let's say for next month, maybe the the rentals may may decline, may stay steady. And I think just like everybody else, we're really learning um, on a day to day basis. What about condos and co ops? Uh, I know you manage condos and co ops. What if somebody at the condo or co op, one of the residents, has trouble paying their monthly maintenance? What are you What are sure. you suggesting to some of the boards? Sure. Yeah. A big part of our portfolio is actually co-ops and condos. We have about 2,000 units that are strictly co-ops and condos. And we haven't seen a drop off on, on payments. If somebody does rent a unit, their responsibility of, is still to the condo or the co-op. So they are still responsible to pay their, their share of the common charges or maintenance fees. What I would say is if they are, if they have fallen into hard times and they can't, you know, they're not receiving their rental income, their best approach is to communicate with management who will then, you know, reach out to the board to get guidance. Every building is different. Payments still need to be made. So, you know, they're going to be taken on a case-by-case -case basis. So, Nativ, with that said, from a legal perspective, what, what would you like to add to that? I would actually like to echo what both of them said. I think everything has to be looked at on an individual basis. I mean, it, what I like to tell my clients is there's always a distinction between reality and the law. So per, per the law, you are presently still entitled to serve rent demands. And interestingly enough, 
um, process serving is deemed an essential service, so the process server can serve those predicate rent demands. Now, you can't commence any new cases, but you can commence the rent demand sort of to set things up so when we are able to commence cases, uh, you, can move forward, you can move forward with those proceedings. Now, that all being said, I think everyone has to look at the class of assets that they have and determine whether it's wise to do a collective predicate rent demand for all those individuals who are presently unable to pay their rent or have defaulted on their rent, and those individuals who perhaps you have a long-standing relationship and understand that there are certain individuals who are unable to make those payments at this time. I think that's especially applicable as it relates to commercial tenancies and retail tenancies, uh, but for those landlords who have 500 or 1,000 or more residential tenants, I don't know that you can necessarily do that and reach out to each and every one of those individuals and see what the circumstances are. So you may, you may be compelled in order to protect your asset uh, to commence and to at least start the proceeding by virtue of the 14-day notice and the five-day notice. That all being said, we are aware of certain cases where tenants have gone on strike or tenants have organized in certain fashions. And in that respect, where the viability of the building becomes into question, then there are certain avenues of which a landlord can pursue. The courts are taking emergency applications. And therefore, if there is a large gathering of individuals of tenants who are striking or refusing to pay the rent, um, irrespective of whether services are or are not being provided, there's not necessarily a demand that is uh, being made in conjunction with that rent strike, then we would be able to commence a case in Supreme Court to commence that proceeding and ensure that the, the building remains viable. I'd just like to add that about an hour ago, uh, we got notification from the chief judge that they are going to allow on even non-essential matters to go forward as of April 13th. Now, it didn't, it didn't specify in the memorandum whether that includes commencing of the cases. It appears to be talking about ongoing cases, and I'm sure as the days and hours continue, we will get further notification as to what exactly that means. But it's something that at least would seem to allow at least current cases to move forward, and we'll see what that means in terms of commencing new cases. I know, for example, Jason has a case in which there were a number of tenants who were threatening a rent strike just, uh, just a few days ago, and I wasn't sure how he was approaching that, whether he was seeking a Supreme Court injunction as to that or uh, what steps he was taking in that regard, if you can speak to that, Jason. Yeah, I mean, I can mention, I, I think the memo at this point that the court issued says no new cases. Obviously, this stuff is changing day to day. You know, a lot of the things we're talking about today, the entire landscape could be different in a week. Right now, we're just taking it day to day to figure out how to deal with these issues, right? So, for example, we're getting a few clients who have had communications with groups of tenants, individual tenants. Some of them are nice and expressing legitimate concerns about what's going on. Um, some of them are maybe a bit more demanding in tone. But for the most part, you know, I, I think it needs to be better understood publicly that owners are businesses. They're trying to solve problems from a business perspective. They have a lot of obligations right now. And it just so happens that they provide a service that is one of the essential survival requirements of life, which is shelter. And 
you know, it, it's just as important that shelter be able to be provided right now in a functional way uh, that it is for food to be provided in a functional way. So this is a really important business that owners are involved in. Um, being able to keep everything functional and running and satisfying other debts that they have that are uh, and obligations that they have that are still in force uh, is crucial. Um, and I think that to varying degrees, groups of tenants are recognizing that and understanding that. So for some owners, they're setting up a framework where uh, people are able to pay what they can pay in the short term. And then there's some reasonable uh, time frame and mechanism for catching up on those payments in the future. Um, given that the courts are closed right now, uh, and even though we have various ideas and strategies for how to deal with it when the courts start to reopen, for now, a great approach is to just talk to your tenants if you can, get a sense of what their needs are, and try to work something out uh, in, a, in a reasonable way until courts are up and running and functional. So, so with that said, uh, Jason, Carmela, I'd like you to speak to some pro, and Eli too as well, uh, maybe some proactive measures that each one of you took in anticipation of what might happen at the beginning of the month. First thing we did was we, we spoke internally, we met with our team, and we came up with a list of things to send out to the, to the residents. They were both sent via email, they were both sent via um, mail, and also they were posted at the building. So we gave them information on where they can get help through the government. Go onto our website, click on links to get through to the government, phone numbers to call. And we started the, we set the precedence with the communication. Um, we did call outs to our residents. And then we started calling individuals that we thought were gonna be really heavily hit on this. Now, it was important for us to give as much information as we possibly could with understanding that what we offer to one is it may set the precedence that we have to offer it to all. Um, and that's very difficult at this time. So we, the biggest thing was just keeping them informed, giving them data, what they needed to go out and, uh, and uh, reach out to the local officials to get support and get help. And we, you know, continue to support them moving forward. Eli? As this started to head towards where we are today, second week of March, where we realized we would most likely be in a long you know, period of quarantine or social distancing and the impacts that would have on business and then ultimately real estate. I think the first thing I did was uh, load up on the one supply that I thought would most help me get through this, which was tequila. Uh, after, I got my te <laughs> after I got my tequila in place, um, the reality is I sort of looked at it very similar to uh, my mom would be very proud and she always wanted me to be a doctor, you know, similar to triage where I looked across my portfolio and I said, okay, let's break this down into what are the critical cases? What are the cases that will be stable? And that was everything from asset class to location, what buildings had a percentage of commercial income versus residential income, what buildings had lenders that had cash management, what buildings had lenders that I was allowed to cash manage myself. What, what operating accounts had money, which buildings didn't. And then I started to prioritize, you know, in reverse order with obviously the more concerning assets being at the top of that list. And then I created a list, every single asset, including the ones that are in development and construction. And I reached out the last week of March to every single lender and saying, I don't know what the request is, and I'm hoping there'll be no request at all, but I just need to put on your radar that you know, there's just been a material change in the market and it's affecting our asset, which affects your loan. And I don't know what my request is. My hope it's nothing. And then I could tell you in a week from now, the mortgage is paid and everything is good. 
Um, that may be the case. It may not. You know, we may need to discuss a forbearance, but I want to be on your radar mm -hmm. now, um, even before I have a request for you, so that you see I'm being proactive. And I think, you know, that's my message for everybody is we're all in this together. This is not a crisis that is affecting one set you know, group. It's not affecting the lenders more than it's affecting the landlords. This is a collective crisis. So I think the overall spirit in dealing with these problems has been one of everybody trying to get together and figure it out. So I think just being proactive and reaching out, whether it's your attorney, whether it's your lender, whether it's your general contractor, and having open dialogue was basically how I spent the last week of March preparing for the unknown. It appears that communication is paramount. Regardless of what degree of communication has happened up to this point, it sounds like you two are really, really on top of it. That doesn't mean you can't start now. Talk a little bit about that because everyone not, might not have been as proactive as, as both of you have been. Yeah, so I, I want to echo again what Eli said. Um, we, I, we pretty much did the same exact thing, looking at our portfolio, looking at the assets that we, we felt were more vulnerable, and we reached out to our banks. Some we had to request a forbearance because we had already spoken to uh, some of the lenders, some of the commercial tenants uh, and buildings that were heavily commercial, and others we just put it on their radar. So I think what Eli said is spot on. You need to communicate. Um, we as a team were just talking earlier today regarding some commercial tenants that have reached out and said, hey, here's our situation. Here's the game plan. We've you know, applied for an SBA loan. We plan on making a payment hopefully in the next couple months. Then we have others that we reached out to and they're just MIA. Those are the people that you're not going to really feel too inclined to work with, regardless of how many times you've called them. They're not answering. They're not paying. Same thing goes for us. You know, you just want to be proactive. You want to call the vendors that you work with on a daily basis. You want to call your, your mortgage banks and, and speak to them and just make sure that everybody understands what your intentions are and it just helps for an easier conversation. God forbid there, there is a situation that can't make that payment. And what about the staffing and maintenance of the buildings and also the fact that people are in their apartments 24 seven now. So there's a, there's a big drain on uh, the utilities, increasing costs of water and electricity and gas and oil. What's happening there? Well, that's, it, it, so it's, it's the perfect storm. You have less money coming in and you, you have more maintenance costs. So with our staff, you know, we've increased uh, the amount of cleaning in the building. In some cases, we'd have to bring on some extra help. What we've done is we've, we have asked the residents that if it's an issue that can wait or can be resolved on their end to do so, um, that we don't expect our superintendents and our maintenance staff to go into units unless it's an emergency. Um, and, and that's been well received. We, we haven't received many maintenance requests since we've communicated that with them. With them. But again, we've done call outs to our residents. We've, made, we've posted notices. They understand what we expect and what we can offer. Um, and we feel like that because of that, it's been, uh, it's been well received. But yes, we've had to increase, um, you know, cleaning. We've had to increase some maintenance in some areas. People are home, right? So you, you tend to get some complaints that maybe you don't typically get, people making noise during the day, um, just, you know, some random uh, uh, things that you typically don't deal with when everybody's at work. And you're right, there is wear and tear on, on the building as far as garbage and, and, and maintenance is concerned. So, Bill, if I can just also just address some of the questions coming in. I saw a question from uh, Ziv Karasante asking um, what government programs are in place for tenants and landlords and things of that nature. 
I don't know how many people are familiar. There are certain bills that are presently in the works in the, in the Senate. Um, there's Bill 8139, which is, I believe, is sponsored by uh, uh, Senator Kavanaugh. I'm sorry, that's Senator Gianaris and 8140A, which is sponsored by Kavanaugh. Um, the Gianaris bill is sort of an amendment of an earlier bill, which would have had whatever rent payments a landlord doesn't receive, that it would be deducted from a mortgage that has since been amended. And the Kavanaugh bill is one that allows for certain vouchers uh, to be given to tenants. Both bills are in the very preliminary stage. The legislature is not due back until April 20th. We know it's a short legislative session until June 2nd. So I don't know necessarily that either of these bills will be passed, especially since Governor Cuomo in his press conferences has indicated that he's addressed the rental problem uh, by virtue of the eviction moratorium that's presently in effect. So as for what is presently being offered to landlords, not apparently not much. I mean, I actually saw another article this morning in The Real Deal by Georgia Cromay, who specifically wrote an article about that the fact that the CARE Act um, doesn't seem to provide much relief to landlords uh, because they don't because they are deemed generally to be a passive business. But perhaps Brian and Matthew, um, you can speak to uh, what relief, if any, is available through the CARE Act to landlords. Yeah, so Brian, Matt, do you guys want to speak to that now? Since Nati brought it up, I think that's a good idea. And remember, we have a lot of real estate professionals, uh, people that property owners, landlords that own buildings, people that are in ancillary aspects of the real estate industry. How is the CARE Act watching out for them? I could start and then, you know, we could talk a little bit with, with Matt about some of the SBA provisions. I think the, the passive rules that were just mentioned are, are much more related to, to some of that. Um, from a pure tax perspective, the CARES Act had an awful lot in it, potentially for real estate owners. First thing being the long-awaited qualified improvement fix in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act back in 2017. The definition of qualified improvement property was revised and a whole bunch of different categories were rolled into one category of qualified improvement property. And the intention was to have that qualified improvement property be eligible for a much more accelerated depreciation than the building itself. So you refresh a lobby or you do some tenant fit up or you do some interior improvements to your non-residential space. The design was to get much more help in the way of depreciation deductions. Unfortunately, when they drafted the law, they forgot a couple cross-references. And for the last two years or year and a half, we've been waiting for congressional action to issue a technical correction related to that qualified improvement property. Under the CARES Act, those assets would have been eligible to be deducted up to 100% in the year they were placed in service. Some special rules if the taxpayer uh, had elected out of the 163J interest limitation, which I'll try not to get too technical. Um, but if they did elect out of that interest limitation for real estate activities, they would have been able to take those assets and depreciate them over 20 years instead of 40. Um, that came through and that got fixed. So that is a retroactive fix back to 2018. And it could provide uh, real estate uh, entities who placed those assets in service to get some relief in the form of depreciation, which would then create a net operating loss that can now be carried back. So it's probably one of the quickest ways on the tax side. There's a whole bunch of tax provisions in there. And I don't, I don't know how far we want to go on, you know, until those, those issues come up. But but the qualified improvement property fix with the carryback on net operating losses can prove to be pretty, pretty helpful. 
Now, there's some other carry back provisions on losses and gains. You can look forward, you can look back, you can redo some of your tax returns. Yep. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I'll try to do it in some logical order. So in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, one of the things that the IRS changed, the Congress changed was net operating losses used to be carried back two years and forward 20. Um, in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, they changed how net operating losses are treated for tax purposes, and they took away the ability to go backwards. So now if I lost money in 2018, I could no longer carry that net operating loss back to 2016 or back to 2017 and get a quick refund of any taxes I may have paid in those tax years because they took away my ability to carry back losses. Part of the stimulus plan, one thing they did do is they said, okay, those losses can now be carried back up to five years. So the old rule was two. Temporarily for losses in 18, 19, or 20 now, you can go back five years um, and carry those losses back. There was also an excess business loss limitation that kicked in, in as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So this was a new section that they added to the code, Section 461L. And in effect, what that section said is if I have other income, interest, dividends, I have you know, wages, and then I have businesses that lose money. And in the real estate space, we all know with depreciation, some of those losses get pretty sizable. As a married taxpayer, I could only deduct up to $500,000 of those losses in excess of my other business income, right? So my net business loss could not exceed $500,000. Any excess business losses turned into net operating loss carry forwards in my next tax year. So if you look at your 2018 tax year, say you have interest in dividends and you have some real estate that lost a million dollars. In that instance, that taxpayer could only use a half a million dollars of that real estate loss. The other half a million became a net operating loss on their 2019 tax return. Net operating losses after the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act were only carried forward. They were carried forward indefinitely and available to offset 80% of their 2019 taxable income. So that $500,000 loss carried forward and became usable in the future, but was hardly usable today. The CARES Act goes back to 2018 and takes away that 461L loss. So for regular trades or businesses, real estate or anything else, 461 becomes not applicable for tax years 18, 19, or 20. That means if I lost a million dollars in 2018 and I only took 500,000 on my tax return, I can now go back amend my 2018 tax return, claim that extra 500,000. If that throws me into a net operating loss, I'm now eligible to go back five years and any taxes I may have paid in earlier years, I could get quick refunds from the government. So it's real fact specific and you're definitely gonna to wanna to talk to your tax professional and make sure that you're walking through all of the different pushes and pulls correctly. But the removal of the 461L excess business loss limitation coupled with the expanded net operating loss carry back provisions um, and the removal of that 80% threshold on that operating losses for these years is certainly going to be pretty powerful for people who have substantial depreciation deductions. Well, it sounds like it'll provide a significant shot in the arm in terms of cash needed right now. Certainly should. The IRS says they're going to continue to process refunds. I've heard anecdotally that when you send your amended tax returns in, there's not really anybody there to receive them right now. But again, that should, that should certainly be at the top of the list is to look at your prior tax filings and see if there's any quick refunds that are available for you to try to get some money back, some much needed cash back from the federal government. And uh, how long do you think it's all going to take? Because you said there's not really anybody there to look at it. 
it's hard. I mean, they're saying they're processing refunds. They're processing refunds in, you know, normal is three to four weeks. Um, if you can electronically file those returns, I would imagine it will be a lot faster if those returns are going to have to be done on paper and mailed away. Uh, it may take a little bit longer. While people are waiting for those refunds, there are some things that they can do proactively right now. There's the uh, disaster loan. There's the uh, payroll protection program. Matt, do you want to speak on those? Sure. The SBA, the Department of Treasury, has over the past week or so really liked that 10 p.m. to midnight hour to release additional guidance. So we've been uh, absorbing quite a few amount of documents in the wee hours of the morning. The most recent update was actually last night where they, uh, the SBA, in conjunction with the Department of Treasury, issued a nice long four-page FAQ section, which gave some clarity, much-needed clarity in some areas and left some other areas ambiguous. Um, so just to back up a little bit from the perspective of what is available out there, there are two main programs that most of the general public is, is speaking about, Bill, and you referenced both of them, right? There's the, there's the EIDL, which is the Economic Injury Disaster Loan Program. And there is the Paycheck Protection, which is also under the SBA. So, with regard to the EIDL, this is a this is a loan program that is run through the SBA, and this loan program has been around for a long time. It was amended recently through the FFCRA, and then also a little bit further through the CARES Act. But this program handles businesses who go through uh, an economic injury as a result of the disaster. It's been it's been utilized in the past for hurricane programs, and they in the middle of March. They enacted this for uh, the COVID-19 crisis as well. As far as the most recent amendments in the CARES Act, there became available this uh, idea of a $10,000 grant program. So through the EIDL grant program, an eligible business could theoretically apply and receive a $10,000 grant. So um, the, the premise of the grant is that it's, it's, it's 10000 for whoever is eligible. And once you get that money, if, if you don't go further with any loan program or you don't partake in the PPP, that does not need to be repaid. The idea is that when you complete that application, you get in line, so to speak, for an EIDL loan. And at that point, an SBA officer. And again, this program is run completely through the SBA. It's not through private lenders at all. An SBA loan officer will get in touch with you and will determine your economic loss. There is a lot of ambiguity specifically around the real estate group and the real estate t different types of companies about who would be eligible for this because there were provisions that were enacted that were, that were current and then there were provisions that were amended through the subsequent legislation over the past month. And there is still some ambiguity about whether or not real estate holding companies would be uh, eligible for this. And, and to be honest, there hasn't been much by way of clarification on that. Uh, and I think we're, we're still largely waiting for that information to come out. As far as uh, eligibility, uh, the companies are, are obviously welcome to uh, discuss with the SBA directly their situation. They can, they can reach out, they can uh, speak with their counsel, their SBA counsel to see if their entity specifically would be eligible. Um, you know, but as far as the EIDL goes, that's, that's kind of the most up-to-date information we have on that. Uh, anecdotally, the program does uh, offer, well, legislatively, the program offers two million, up to $2 million of support. But anecdotally, we've been hearing that the SBA is limiting that to a far lower amount. Um, so it, it's unclear whether or not that's going to be reviewed on a case-by-case -case basis or if at the overall level, they'll be lowering it by applicant. Uh, but there has been a substantial increase in uh, applications for this, especially upon passing of the CARES Act, which allowed for that $10,000 grant program. Because what they're finding is 
you know, just like uh, any other uh, program, the, the the ability for uh, fraudulent activity is high, and they're finding that people are just like with their tax returns, people are logging in to file an application with their EIN, and they're finding that one has already been filled out on their behalf. So there is some delay in that process. As, as far as I know, we don't know of, uh, as far as the clients that we are dealing with that have applied for this, any that have actually received any money yet. Um, so that, uh, you know, certainly uh, will hopefully come soon. Applications only began last Friday. So the EIDL applications have been going on for quite some time. Um, when we get to the Paycheck Protection Program, that's right, the applications started last Friday, and that program is run directly through banks. And those banks have to be SBA lenders? So the, the program started with the intention that SBA lenders were going to be the ones carrying it out. I think the overall demand, and the plan was kind of always there to expand the lender base. Marco Rubio actually tweeted out just a couple hours ago that fintech companies were going to be approved to be able to help circulate these funds and get these applications in, which is, as far as a bandwidth perspective, a welcome change because these banks are getting inundated with applications. So anyone who hasn't applied for either the disaster loan, which has been ongoing for a while, or the payroll protection program, where should they go right now to start the process? So the Paycheck Protection Program, what we recommend is getting in touch with your current banker immediately and seeing if they are accepting applications. Technically, the program opened on Friday for corporations, for LLCs. The distinction is not very clear, but the general thought process is if you have employees and payroll, the, the program is kind of open to you. And if you are an independent contractor or uh, a self-employed individual akin to our, you know, our brokers who are on the call um, and you're getting paid out of 1099s, the program will open to you on Friday. Bill of just some some of the discussions. Oh yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Natif. Some of the discussions about the bills I've seen in the question and answer. There have been a couple of questions regarding other bills. Um, I saw a number of questions regarding the good cause eviction bill and what's happening with that in view of everything that's happening. We know that the good cause eviction bill was gaining a lot of traction uh, before the pandemic hit, but in view of the pandemic, I haven't seen it move out of the judiciary committee. And I think well, the legislature is primarily focus on, focusing on any type of rent relief uh, for the pandemic. And so based upon, what, based upon what I'm seeing and what I'm hearing and in view of the short legislative session, it is not my expectation that the good cause eviction bill will pass in this legislative session. I also saw a question, uh, will there be any relief for real estate taxes? I believe in the Kavanaugh bill, it addressed it, it, it addressed it in some, well, actually in the Kavanaugh bill, it was just vouchers for rent. But I saw a comment by a Joanna Wong, who I understand is a rather active individual. And she has a note in the Q&A that Brooklyn Councilman Cornegate is pushing for a deferral of property taxes and people should reach out to your councilman to push for property tax relief. And so maybe that's, a, that's an avenue that can be pursued. Eli. I think people need to be realistic with real estate taxes. You know, in my experience in the business, real estate taxes are just decoupled from reality. So we had the legislation with the rent laws last year, and yet real estate taxes went up on multifamily and assessed values went up. I think something like 30% of the city's budget comes from real estate taxes. And I think we also have to understand that it's circular. Like I said, this whole thing with tenants paying rent, lenders, we're all in an ecosystem. You know, maybe there can be some deferral for a month or two of real estate taxes, but we also have to think about the city and the services. And if there's not going to be some federal stimulus to help New York City, 
I don't know that New York City can function for an indefinite period of time without receiving real estate taxes in June. Like I said, it's a very delicate ecosystem. And I think the next 30 to 60 days require everybody sort of being proactive and working together. So just in furtherance of uh, being proactive, there are also a number of questions about, um, I saw, for example, um, individuals, Ben Oheb Shalom and others who are saying they have certain retail tenants who are holding over and have not paid rent for a significant period in time. Again, right now, the courts are not commencing, are not allowing the commencement of any new cases. However, if you have a tenant, uh, let's say a substantial retail tenant, who by virtue of their non-payment is materially and substantively impacting upon the financial standing of the entity owning that building, I would encourage you to be proactive and either reach out to that tenant. And if that doesn't work, then you need to file an emergency application because in all, in all events, it sounds like that it's an, it's an emergency. Now, as to existing cases, it sounds from the, from the April 13th memo, again, which just went out within the last hour, that courts are going to uh, be conferencing certain cases. So if you have a tenant who has not been paying for a substantial amount of time and, um, and it's coming to the point where it's impacting upon the viability of the entity controlling the building, then I think you should contact your attorney, make sure that he or she is making all efforts to get in front of a judge who are getting acclimated to using these virtual tools and the court system itself is acclimating itself to use these virtual tools and be proactive to seeing uh, that you get in front of the judge when they're ready to roll out with this program, which looks to be in the coming week. So Carmelo and uh, Eli, you would talk a little bit about uh, how you communicated to your tenants, both commercial and residential programs that they could take advantage of uh, in order to get the cash flow so that they could go ahead and pay their rent. Uh, so we talked about the payroll protection program, and I believe some of that can be used to pay rent. And then there's the disaster loan, which we talked about. What are some programs, uh, Matt and Brian, if you want to speak to this or if anybody else has intel on this, what are some programs that individuals can use? People that just have regular jobs, they don't have a business and they're unemployed or they're laid off or they're furloughed. What, what kind of programs can they use to bring back some cash flow so they can go ahead and pay their rent? I'll take this one because there's no SBA provisions for that one, Matt. So unless you, you know something that I don't know about. No, I don't. Yeah, I didn't think so. So, so um, the, the, the biggest things in the act, so the CARES Act had a few provisions in there for individuals. Um, one of the biggest provisions, and you know, I'm about to get out over my skis a little bit here, is uh, unemployment insurance. So the CARES Act had a lot of provisions in there to beef up unemployment insurance to support the states in the unemployment space, to expand unemployment coverage to the gig economy to self-employed individuals. So in certain cases, those individuals who may not have been eligible prior to the CARES Act are now going to be eligible to go claim unemployment. Um, they also have a stimulus, part of the stimulus package, a $600 per week kicker included through the end of July for those that are claiming unemployment as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. So what they really did is they tried to make sure that the, the, the wage, I think the, I read an article the other day, I think the average unemployment insurance uh, the unemployment amount nationally is like $385 a week. 
So they took that and in order to try to equalize the playing field or give a little bit more to those who find themselves unemployed as a result of this COVID-19 crisis, they added that extra $600 a week. So what that does is that takes uh, the average, the analysis I saw was it took the average to about $25 an hour. You know, your average person working in that $10, $12, $15 an hour range is actually going to do pretty well, relatively speaking, by claiming unemployment for the next few weeks if their restaurant is closed or their job that they were working is is now closed. Um, again, one of the biggest uh, expansions here is the coverage of those self-employed individuals. They're going to now be eligible to go to the state and claim unemployment relief, and then they get that extra $600 federal benefit as well um, through the end of July. So on the unemployment side, there's a lot more out there. Yeah, no, that's great. And what about tapping into retirement accounts, IRAs, like, 401ks, taking yeah. loans from retirement accounts? What about that? Yeah, you read my mind because that was going to be the next one. Now, right, any great. financial planner will tell you this is probably the worst thing you can do, but desperate times call for desperate measures, right? And and so one thing that the uh, the CARES Act does is expands access to your retirement accounts. So start with the loans. You used to be able to take a loan from a qualified plan up to half of your vested balance or $50,000, whichever is less. Those loans repayable over five years. Most plans have some spe- some specific uh, provisions that will allow that long that loan term to be longer in the case of a qualified housing purchase. But if we just ignore that for now, those five-year loans that you could take up to 50% uh, of your vested balance, they expanded that provision. So now you can loan up to 100% of your vested balance. You could take a loan of up to 100% of your vested balance capped at $100,000 from your qualified retirement plan. Um, that loan is going to still be repaid over five years. There's also some provisions for, excuse me, payment holidays for loans that were already taken. So if you have a loan, um, there's a period of time now where you may not have to repay your loan if you're suffering from some cash crisis. So if you've taken a loan out, you're making those payments automatically through payroll withdraw. An existing loan, the payments can stop. If you take out a new loan, you can actually expand what you can borrow to up to $100,000 or 100% of your vested balance. That's now, how the loan now, now, now with regard with regard to the loan, uh, the new loan, mm-hmm. do your payments start right away, or do you it, do you also have a year before you have to start making payments? It, it seems like the payments would start right away on the new loan. The provision clearly calls for loans in effect on the basically on the date of the CARES Act. It might have actually even referred mm-hmm. to February fifteenth, but um, any new loans don't seem to have that same payment holiday but existing loans do have that payment holiday. So if you have a loan, that's a little bit of a cash savings in that you've had a loan for some other purpose. Now you have a break in making those payments. If you go ahead and yeah. take the new loan, they are going to hit you for the payments, it appears, based on the CARES Act. And I want to I want to clarify one more thing with regard to that. If the, um, well, if someone's going to take a loan from their 401k, and by the way, it's going to only be done with a 401 Okay, right. Qualified plans. Right. This is yeah, the IRAs. Right. There's a different provision. There's some right. uh, and, benefits. And you could do it. You could do it with a 401k plan that you have with your employer, or if you were self-employed and you have a self-directed 401k, you can do it with that as well. Yep. But but the money you're borrowing has to be cash in the account. Is that correct? It can't be invested in in something. Uh, in your 401k account. Yeah. Like in um, other words, let's say let's say you have a two hundred fifty thousand dollar 401k. And it's all, you know, and you have it with your employer and your employer's uh, custodian has been managing that for you. And they have 100% of it invested in mutual funds and securities. And now, of course, now that's down a little bit, it's coming back a little bit yesterday. I didn't look yet today. 
But do you have to now sell some of those securities so you have the cash in the account to take the loan? Or can you or you could can you still borrow without liquidating any of those securities? Yeah, I, that's going to be plan by plan. I would think if you're managing yourself, you're going to have to go ahead and liquidate some of those securities. If you're if you're with an administrator who's administrating your plan and and is willing to offer, I know that there's some plans out there where they can offer you a loan based on your balance and not necessarily force you to go ahead and liquidate your security. Right, so that's so that's something you got to check with your. Uh, you're going to have to call your administrator and and yeah. have your administrator compare that to what your plan documents say because it may require an administrator an amendment to your plan documents as well. Now on the IRA side, um, where the loan doesn't apply, there is some expanded benefit for withdrawals as a result of COVID-19. So if you need to take plan, if you need to take distributions from an IRA, um, you could take distributions up to $100,000 from an IRA. uh, And as long as you're affected by COVID-19 and it's a self-certification, but what that means is either you're sick with COVID-19, your spouse is sick with COVID-19, or you've lost work, your hours are down, your payments are down, you're somehow suffering some income issue as a result of the coronavirus crisis, you can now take a distribution from your IRA of up to $100,000. The 10% penalty that you would normally pay for an early distribution is not going to apply to that distribution from the IRA. And you can defer payment of those taxes instead of having to pay it in 2020 when you take the distribution, you can spread that out over three years. So you can spread the tax bite out over a few years. You do save the 10% early withdrawal penalty that would normally apply. Um, and you can, so you can get access to your IRA that way. All right. So that's really good information. So uh, Craig in the background just sent me an email. Most of the questions that have been asked so far have been answered. And he asked me just to mention everybody, uh, go into the chat and send us some questions because we'd like to answer your questions and send it to uh, all panelists and attendees. So you're going to submit questions to all panelists and attendees. When you go into the chat, you want to make sure and look at that drop down and pick all panelists and attendees so that this way uh, we can, you know, we can see the questions and then we get to them for you. I saw one question that wasn't addressed uh, specifically. They were asking if you serve the predicate rent demand notices now, will it be deemed stale um, by the time the court commences? And so the answer is it should not be. Um, There's almost a question if you don't commence commence the proceeding, uh, will there be a laches defense? In in other words, you've let the rent build up such that it now prejudices the tenant. Um, so So in order to really protect yourself, you almost have to make that difficult decision of, do I want to commence the case now despite how it looks? Um, Again, those who have a large group of tenants a large number of tenants I, I th- where it's difficult to affirmatively and actively reach out to each and every one of them to find out what their situation is. We are advising to commence that rent proceeding so you don't run into uh, that latches. And another thing that I should mention is that while there is a moratorium in relation to the uh, eviction of rental tenants, um, there's that moratorium is in respect to getting a possessory judgment. So in other words, if your sole concern is getting the rent and um, one of the options that uh, a landlord has once cases are allowed to commence would be commencing a case in Supreme Court. And you can commence that case in Supreme Court and seek solely a monetary judgment. 
and there is no moratorium on any monetary judgment and the collection thereof. So that's also an option that landlords can consider. And I think Jason wanted to add to what you just said. Yeah, to, to add to what Nativ was saying about the, the strategy right now, and to piggyback on what we've been saying to everyone for the most part, um, you know, it's hard to know exactly what the rules are right now and when the old way of doing things is going to come back into effect. So I think communicating with people is of the utmost importance. Um, you want to try to get a sense of what your individual tenants' needs are, especially for big commercial tenants that you rely on primarily in particular buildings. Um, get a sense of what's going on. What do they need? Do they need time? Can you give them time? Can you work with them? Um, is this something where they're going to be able to catch up once things restart? And in terms of sending notices, you want to send notices so that you can preserve your rights so that when things reopen, you can do what you need to do. But you also don't want to send a boilerplate notice that you would have otherwise sent before all of this happened because, you know, the reaction you may get from your tenant may be negative, may be uh, emotional, may be uh, a reaction of fear and concern. So you really want to try to customize the communications that you're engaged in, both written and otherwise, so that people really understand where you're coming from, why you're doing what you're doing, um, that you're not sending these notices because you're trying to harass someone at a time where they're feeling vulnerable, but that you have certain legal obligations and, and financial obligations and that this is just a predicate for those things. Um, so, you know, contacting your attorneys and, and getting a sense of the best way to, to satisfy both of those requirements uh, is essential particularly because the name of the game right now is to try to get at least partial payments of rent in the short term. You really need to reassure your tenants that giving you a partial rent payment isn't just going to be throwing money down the drain because at the end of the day, without a full payment, you know, there's still maybe legal proceedings against you. Um, instead, you really want to reassure them that you're going to try to work with them on a payment plan to see what they can uh, maintain and what they can't, and that a partial payment will be appreciated and will actually... Uh, alleviate some of the short-term concerns. Right. Yeah, no, if I could add to that, we've always taken the position, like Jason said, to try to work, you know, work with our tenants there. Unfortunately, there are people that, you know, will not communicate or will not pay and you have to go forward with an eviction. But more specifically, more recently, after um, the change in the, in the rent laws last year, we made it a point to really just try to communicate, go out of our way to communicate with people, work with them, have them, you know, come into the office, have a conversation, see if there's ways to help them. Obviously, that was all prior to COVID-19, but we're kind of taking that same approach. We are reaching out to people individually that are, you know, severely in arrears. We're trying to make deals with people to avoid them having to go to court. Even people that are in court, we're reaching out to them, again, trying to make deals just trying to keep people in their homes. Um, and, and, you know, as a landlord, as a management company, we've always taken the approach that it's better to work with people, um, help them out and, you know, maybe lose one month's rent opposed to losing four plus, you know, whatever it takes to, to have them get evicted. So I think right now it, it's having that communication with the people, with the residents, reaching out to them, trying to work something out is, uh, is paramount. Uh, Nativ, before, I uh, just saw a question, and before I forget it, I definitely want to pose it to, I believe, either uh, Matt or Brian real quickly. Somebody said if they are a real estate professional and they just have Schedule E income from rent revenue, are they entitled to apply for the PPP? 
I'll, uh, I'll take, I'll take this one on. I actually, I think there's quite a few questions out there about the, uh, as I'm scrolling through the PPP and the different types of entities. So, uh, if you don't mind, Bill, I'll, I'll kind of take a step back and kind of, um, you know, talk about the PPP more specifically and then, uh, and then kind of get, you know, more in the weeds. One thing to, to keep in mind about the Paycheck Protection Program is that when this was put into the CARES Act, what it did was not create a completely new loan program through the SBA. What it did was amend an existing program. One of the difficulties in the way that it was written is in taking the eligibility rules that were written into the CARES Act and sort of meshing them together with what already existed in the U.S. code and sort of determining, well, what actually governs here and what takes over what and what still remains. And unfortunately, the, you know, the SBA and the Treasury, although they've issued a couple of uh, pieces of subsequent guidance on it, haven't specifically clarified for every individual situation. When it comes to the standards SBA loan programs, if you go back prior to the CARES Act and prior to the COVID-19 crisis, one of the limitations is on passive businesses that are owned by tenants and landlords. So I see a couple questions out there that say, well, we've heard that the, the buildings, uh, the, the entities that own the buildings themselves may not qualify anyway. And there is some ambiguity around this and whether or not these entities would qualify. Unfortunately, because of the lack of guidance, we can't say for sure one way or the other. And ultimately, what we're seeing is that the banks who are administering this program are making decisions on the fly. We're seeing different lenders use you know, different criteria, and it's based on everybody interpreting the same law. The distinction between active versus passive, there is a place for that discussion happening in this argument. There are certainly, um, you know, certainly some, some qualification as to whether or not an active or a passive uh, entity may qualify. And the best guidance that we can give you is to speak with your attorneys and speak with the, the bank who was processing the application to, you know, kind of go down that path and give the specific situation and say, here's, here's what we're looking at. Would we qualify? One of the things that I'll say about the Paycheck Protection Program is that the overall uh, base loan amount is on the basis of payroll, right? So it's, you take your payroll costs and, you know, there's certainly a discussion about how payroll costs are defined. Um, and we can get into that if you'd like, uh, if you have the next four hours, I'm happy to. But once you get your average monthly payroll cost, you multiply that by two and a half and that's your maximum loan amount. There's some valid concern amongst companies that own real estate, right, and don't necessarily have employees within those companies, but hold a management company that houses all the employees, that not all of those entities would be eligible to receive relief under this. You know, so that's a, that's a, it's a valid discussion and it's, and it's a valid point. With regard to the specific question that we, you know, we kind of we teed this off, which was whether or not real estate professionals who only have rental income on a schedule can apply. If this is their profession, you know, and they're and they're losing out on uh, they're losing out on income as a result, right? And they're active real estate professionals. I think they have a good case to go to their bank and say, "Look, like, you know, this was my, you know, this was my income." And I know that there's there's scope out provisions for you know certain self employment income, but you know, I think that they have a case. They, they again, at the end of the day. As, as accountants, as as advisors, we can't make the ultimate decision for them because we're not, you know, we're not ultimately administering the program. Um, but we think that there are valid arguments there to be made that that these entities should be receiving benefit under this plan. All right, great. Wow, that was an incredible explanation. Thank you for that. I hope that person feels like their question got answered, and I think they do. Uh, Nativ, I interrupted you before, before uh, Matt came on. Sorry about that. i uh, got a couple of questions here that are legal questions. I think they kind of go together. 
you said that the courts are opening again for non-emergency cases. Can a non-pay case that we already have in court be converted to a holdover now? And then the second question, which I think kind of ties into that, we have several retail tenants that are holding over past the demo lease termination notice and are now closed. Uh, can we serve them or start something now? All right, so that also ties in with another question that I see, which is, can you clarify in the procedure for an emergency application at Supreme Court? In what instance would you suggest proceeding with this application for a commercial tenant? So in relation to those emergency applications, I think individuals themselves are going to know what is and is not an emergency. If the non-payment of rent is going to impact upon your ability to make a mortgage payment, or your ability to pay the real estate taxes, if you don't pay that mortgage, the mortgage company can seek to foreclose on the building. If you don't pay the real estate taxes, the city can impose a lien. I believe that would qualify for an emergency, and therefore I think it behooves you to make that application. I'm not in any way seeking to detract what both Carmelo and Eli were saying, that it's necessary to speak to tenants and try to work things out, and it's always beneficial to seek to resolve things outside the context of litigation. But sometimes there are doesn't exist a, an option and if you have those if you have tenants who are not paying and you're not able to work something out and it is threatening it is threatening your ability to make those mortgage payments then at, you should absolutely be proactive in seeking to make that emergency application um, in direct answer to the question of can you convert a non a holdover uh, to a non-pay that would imply that would assume that you can be actively litigating the cases Again, we're going to have to see how this pans out in relation to the recent memorandum that was that was just distributed around uh, an hour and a half ago at this point. But again, what I would do is I would uh, be in contact with the attorneys and see to it that they get in touch with the judges um, that those cases are in front of to see that those cases are moving because it looks like even in these non-emergency situations, those cases will move. See, there's another question about enforcing of legal fees, Jason, if you want to take that one. Sure, yeah. So, you know, obviously, assuming you have a legal fees provision and that it's broad enough to apply to what you're dealing with, it's always dicey to be able to get 100% of your legal fees even if you prevail. It's easier in a commercial tenant context than in a residential tenant context. There's a lot of politics that come into play in situations like this, given that this is a pretty serious and unprecedented scenario. Um, you know, I think that if you're, if you're envisioning yourself being in front of a judge months from now, trying to enforce the legal fees provision, a lot of your conduct in the preceding months leading up to, you know, eventually getting some judgment in your favor is really going to matter, right? You, you know, you really want to show a judge that you really tried to work things out you tried to be compassionate and reasonable to the extent that you, your business allowed it. And, uh, you know, those kinds of things matter. I wish I could say that, you know, this, this gets looked at in a sort of binary, uh, what does the law say only kind of way, but it usually doesn't. So it's all the more important that you keep in mind the legal rights that you have and that those are always connected to the, the non-legal conduct that you engage in prior to the exercise of those rights. It's important to emphasize that what's, what we still have are contracts, and therefore contracts are still enforceable. So to the extent that the contract has a legal fees clause and you would otherwise be entitled to it, those contracts are still enforceable. I see a question 
uh, from someone, what if a commercial tenant, a good tenant, wants to break the lease despite the offering of a deferral? Again, um, the contract still exists. So if a good tenant just decides to walk away from the lease uh, because of the ongoing pandemic, the landlord still retains his rights to pursue whatever rights and remedies he's had. Those contracts are still enforceable. So with respect to that, Nativ, can a tenant assert a force majeure argument? And what about doctrines of impossibility and frustration of purpose? Force majeure, when there's, a, when there's an extraordinary act that would otherwise allow someone uh, to walk away from their obligations under the contract. Those are usually merge, um, acts of God, um, and they usually generally specifically specify, like let's say a hurricane, things of that nature. So there's a question of whether this pandemic would fall within that force majeure clause. It's very strictly read, and unless it's specified in the, in the contract or lease, and generally most leases wouldn't have pandemics, but I've seen some leases now that have governmental orders, and we know there are governmental orders now that restrict businesses from functioning. So in those cases, you would have to look at the individual leases, you would have to look at the individual contracts, see whether it's covered, and if you have something that could part that would fall within, with, within the list of items within that clause, perhaps you could, uh, you could assert that defense. And if the tenant does, then the landlord tenant will be free from its obligations. Although if you were to ask me, I would say that probably less than 5% of leases would have such force majeure clauses that specifically say, with governmental orders. Um, with frustration of purpose, um, that's even more difficult because it's not a total frustration of purposes because we're assuming at some point these, um, these governmental orders are going to be lifted, buildings will be open, and uh, tenants can, uh, again, resume operations. Now, whether from an economic standpoint they can or from a reality standpoint they can, it's another question. But frustration of purposes generally means within the entire duration of that tenancy, the tenant is unable uh, to do the transaction which underpinned the entire lease. So frustration of purpose and impossibility performance are generally difficult concepts to uphold. So in general, tenants are not going to be able to walk away from their leases uh, and the landlords are going to have their rights and remedies to pursue in the event that um, they're unable to resolve the differences with the tenants. Jason, you are an expert in uh, loft law. Were there some things that you wanted to share with the audience about that with regard to everything that's going on? Sure. I'm very, very briefly, if you're not familiar with the loft law, it uh, generally involves buildings that are uh, historically manufacturing and commercial, and then for whatever reason, people start living in them. Um, and it's a process that the state government created that transitions the building from manufacturing with, uh, you know, not up to code residential use to being fully up to code with a final residential certificate of occupancy. So what's interesting about these buildings is they have a lot of strange quirks that are unique to buildings that tend to uh, have, be affected by rent regulation, unlike what's happening recently to the broader rent stabilization program. Um, these units can still be brought from rent regulation to market rents and still remain residential. Uh, and interestingly, they are occupied much more frequently by live work tenants. That's traditionally the type of occupant that you see in, in a loft building. So a lot of, of live work tenants are actually a little bit more resilient 
to what's been going on economically than an average residential tenant in New York City because they're oftentimes self-employed. They already work remotely. Um, and, you know, depending on the nature of their business, they're able to continue to, to maintain their cash flows, notwithstanding what's going on with the self-quarantining orders. So uh, in addition to that, many of, uh, or I guess a good portion of loft buildings are already affected by partial rent strikes. So the business has been operating, notwithstanding that a certain portion of revenues haven't been coming in for some time. So their financing structure and their uh, ongoing operation costs are a little bit more resilient given what's going on. So, you know, I'm seeing a, a pretty diverse response from, from loft owners, some of whom are really not, you know, drastically affected by what's going on. Um, and then I'm actually seeing some uptick in interest in purchasing loft buildings right now, in part because uh, certain portions of the rent strikes that some of these buildings are being affected by get eliminated when there's a, a bona fide purchase from a new owner. So it's also completely strange compared to how a lot of rent regulated buildings work in New York City, where the, the actions of the prior owner uh, are imparted onto the new owner under the loft law. That's not the case. Uh, a new owner that comes in and makes the appropriate filings with the New York City loft board get uh, a restarting of the deadlines that uh, are correlated to whether or not rent is enforceable and must be paid. So this is actually a really interesting time that I never would have expected would occur where you have this confluence of what's going on with the pandemic, the fact that the, uh, the governor's executive orders have told statutes of limitations and regulatory deadlines for, at this point, the next few weeks, at least, given what he's telegraphing in his press conferences. Um, and it actually provides a unique opportunity for people to continue working on legalization efforts in loft buildings uh, and to continue to work together with tenants to to get those buildings up to code to get a final CO. So uh, I guess a, a small silver lining in the real estate industry given what's otherwise going on. Jason, thanks for clarifying all that. Uh, we did get a question. Uh, they would like to know what the government is doing to protect landlords. And, you know, this seems to be what's going on in, in the conversation and what's going on in the press uh, and the rest of the question says, it seems that their focus is to protect the tenants from evictions during this crisis. Person who, uh, who asked the question understands, but why doesn't the government offer some type of financial help uh, to landlords when tenants refuse or can't pay? And are there any programs in the works to help landlords so they can help tenants in return? And I think we spoke a little bit to that uh, in terms of being proactive, uh, um, Eli and Carmelo talked about that. Uh, does anyone else have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think, Bill, I think one of the things that, yes, it does seem that LLCs that own buildings that don't have employees or have any significant payroll are not going to be either eligible, or even assuming they are eligible based on the current parameters of the program, wouldn't really see much from the PPP program because they don't have much payroll. And that's the you know, basic factor that drives the loan amount. That said, there were changes to the Internal Revenue Code um, that are going to be extremely accretive to landlords in terms of shortening depreciable uh, life on certain improvements, being able to uh, have more flexibility with net operating losses. So I think you're going to see landlord relief come more from the Internal Revenue Code than it would be from direct subsidies. Um, and I think that's what will be the ultimate driver for landlords will be what you can look at your previous year's tax returns, any 
improvements you've put in. Um, and, you know, one of the things I'll say is, you know, just as this pandemic started, we were all just starting to get our arms around what opportunity zones meant. And that was legislation from 2017. We're like nine days into this legislation. Just sitting here on my iPad, I got two alerts um, in the last 20 minutes from CNBC um, that there have been two changes, you know, to the legislation. One, an increase to the SBA loan funding um, that's being proposed this week in the Senate. Um, an additional um, news flash came across my screen about the oversight of the two trillion slush fund. Uh, that's out there. So I think this is evolving. You know, I think we're still in the part of this process where, you know, the rules are going to evolve and um, you need to look at what you can accomplish right now. It's sort of like when you're in a riptide, everybody tries to swim back to shore and that's the worst thing you do. You've got to swim sideways. So I think right now it's staying afloat and figuring out, you know, how to sort of keep yourself going. So as things become more fluid and more understandable, you're in a position to take care of them. Yeah, Eli, thanks so much for that. Uh, Brian, uh, I want to get back to you uh, with the question I didn't ask before when we were talking about uh, the uh, different programs that are available. There's a 50% tax credit that I heard something about, and it's an either-or provision. Could you go into depth on that for us? Yeah, so this is uh, the 50% tax credit is called the Employer Retention Tax Credit. There's some special rules out there. It gets pretty complicated, so I'll try to keep it at a 30,000-foot level. But this is only for people who are not eligible or choose not to claim the PPP loan. Once you claim the PPP loan, you go to the SBA, you apply for that loan, and you're granted that loan, you're now ineligible to take advantage of this employer retention tax credit. So the way the tax credit works is uh, there, are, there are two, I'll call it triggering events, that allow you to qualify for the tax credit. First, your business is shut down because of the COVID-19 crisis. The governor told all non-essential businesses to close. The business had to close. You'd qualify at that point. If your business is still operating, but you see a reduction in your gross revenue over the same quarter last year, you would then start to qualify as well. And then you would continue to qualify for each quarter during 2020, where your business is either continues to be closed because of the COVID-19 crisis or where you stay below uh, 80% of the same quarter last year in gross receipts. So you start to qualify when your gross receipts fall to 50% below. And then as you recover, until you get to 80% of what your receipts were same quarter last year, you retain, el you retain eligibility for this credit. Credit says, if I continue to pay my employees, I am eligible for a credit of up to 50% of the qualified wages I pay to them, plus the health insurance costs I carry for them, up to a cap of $10,000 per employee. So the math can be pretty simple. If you have uh, employees who all earn more than $10,000, you're getting a $5,000 credit times the number of employees you continue to pay. Special nuance comes in at the 100 employee level. Below 100 employees, you can claim this for all the qualifying wages you pay to your employees that continue to work, provide, whether they work and provide services, whether you've in effect furloughed them for services, but they continue to collect their salary, you can claim this credit. Once you go over that 100 employee count, you can only claim this credit for employees who are not providing services. So if you've had to down, downsize your workforce because your business is reduced, or you've laid people off, for lack of a better term, you've asked them not to come in or they can't come in because the company's closed, but you're more than 100, 
you only get this credit when you continue to pay those wages to employees who are not providing services to you. To the extent that you do this, you qualify for this credit. And again, it can be $5,000 per employee for the period of time for which you qualify. So there's a lot of layers to that program, but it is a nice cash flow savings for uh, employers who may not otherwise qualify for a PPP. The math to compare the two obviously is out there. So the PPP has that forgiveness aspect to it. And assuming you get full forgiveness, the PPP is generally a little bit better just because you're getting the money to pay the payroll and then you get that full forgiveness. Where if you're not eligible for the PPP, this retention credit does kick in nicely to help out. All right, great. Thanks a lot, Brian. So we have 15 minutes left and we want to close on time. So I have three other questions that were emailed to me that I'm going to get answered. And then there's actually a fourth question, which, which we were actually going to address and we're saving the best for last so that we end on a high note. Uh, and, and I think actually everything that we've talked about is uh, fairly positive in terms of how we can navigate what it is that we're dealing with right now. Uh, after we answer these three questions and before we go to that last question, if there's anything else that the panelists want to add, uh, and then we can leave the last five minutes for that last question. So one of them is I have a restaurant tenant who is not paying rent because the restaurant is closed. Building is the name of LLC with no employees. Matt, is there an SBA grant that I could apply to get the restaurant rent? I wish I had a direct answer for that. Um, unfortunately, it largely depends on the ownership and uh, whether or not it's uh, active or not. They, it seems like without uh, employees within the LLC, the Paycheck Protection Program is probably not going to provide any relief. Uh, the economic injury disaster loan may, uh, depending on the specific situation and whether or not the individual company becomes, uh, it fits the eligibility criteria under the uh, SBA uh, small business uh, concern guidance. And I'll, I'll uh, recite this question again. I think we kind of touched on it before, but uh, Nativ or Jason, you could handle this. If a landlord has an existing case against a retail tenant that has not paid rent in over a year, do you expect that case to move forward starting April 13th. Well, right now we're hearing from the state Supreme Court system that they're moving everything forward uh, starting April 13th. It's already pending. I have no idea how quickly that's going to move forward. Um, I have to expect there's a significant backlog and that some judges are having difficulty adjusting to the remote working uh, environment. But we're going to push these things forward as quickly as we possibly can. We're going to have to wait a little bit longer for exact guidance on how this is going to affect a housing court situation. Um, but keep in mind, you can you can seek to recover possession both in Supreme Court and in housing court. There are lots of reasons why you might prefer to do it in housing court or landlord-tenant court. But lately, there have been more and more reasons to think about pursuing possession in Supreme Court. This may be an excellent reason to rethink your approach and consider seeking possession in Supreme Court if that form becomes more efficient and more readily available than landlord tenant court. Thank you for that, Jason. One of our attendees wrote in, uh, we have a sub-company with rental agents. What federal relief is available to them under unemployment on New York State? And is the EIDL or PPP more relevant? When can they apply? I understand their application trails behind the previous PPP application date this last Friday. I guess, Matt, that would be you. 
Yeah, sure. So um, the Paycheck Protection Program covers independent contractors uh, in and of themselves as separate entities, the way that it's written. So those individuals could potentially apply for the Paycheck Protection Program. The original date was scheduled one week after um, after the opening date of April 3rd. So it would be this Friday. However, I've been hearing uh, grumblings that that may get pushed back. Um, not totally sure. The grumbling started while we were on this call. So I, I haven't verified that, but I know I think one of the attendees actually mentioned that they had heard from their banker that, that it was pushed as well. So um, it seems like it's, it's getting some steam that it may be pushed back, but independent contractors are covered. They can, they can um, apply for the Paycheck Protection Program themselves either Friday or shortly thereafter, hopefully. Well, if I can, I'd just like to address one question that I think other people may have as well. I see it from an Ariel Sosa. It seems that May's rent collection will be an issue. Can tenants use their security deposit amount to pay rent as short-term relief? There was initially a bill that would have allowed uh, tenants to use their security deposits, um, but I haven't seen much traction in relation to that bill. And so in relation to whether a tenant can use the security deposit, they cannot use a security deposit absent uh, legislation, which is being discussed. And in relation to whether a landlord can, uh, that's going to be specific to the lease. All right, great. Thank you very much. So before we get on to the good news, which is going to involve court decisions regarding the HSTPA, the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act of 2019, uh, that Nativ uh, and his firm were very, very involved in, uh, and I'm looking forward to Nateev sharing that with all of us. Is there anything that any of you want to add to this before we get to that? No, I'm dying to hear what Nateev says about this case. All right, great. So, Nateev, you're, you're up. You're up, Nateev. Well, okay, so there were five decisions that were argued before the Court of Appeals on January 7th. Uh, my firm was involved with two of them. I argued one of them. The decisions were concerning the HSTPA, the new rent laws that were passed in June uh, 14th of 2019 and their applicability and how they're going to apply to pending or retroactive cases. Um, we received last Thursday the decision from the Court of Appeals and to say that is groundbreaking is almost an understatement. Um, it was a 110-page decision with uh, a 4-3 divided panel and most importantly, when we can really do an entire webinar devoted to the decision, it is really um, historic and monumental in many ways. But if I had to break it down in, I guess, three minutes or less, basically what the decision said is that the new base date for purposes of determining rent is going to be June 14th of 2015. That is extremely significant because whereas before the new rent law, or rather in view of the new rent law, there was no restrictions on how, on how far a tenant uh, can go in reviewing the rental history, tenant or a court in reviewing the rental history, which made transactions, buying and selling of buildings all the more difficult uh, because in order to do due diligence, there was no period in time in which you can say, okay, there is repose and we look back no further than that date. Now with this decision, the court has in essence, what the court has said is that uh, the legislature passed a law that was unconstitutional. In fact, the dissent said this was the first time in the Court of Appeals history which it knocked down the retroactive application of the legislation passed by the legislature. And in, in fact, what the judiciary did 
was in effect say that the, the legislature went too far in enacting certain provisions of the new law. That is extremely significant. And so uh, what it did in terms of, it, it set the base, the new base state for purposes of determining rent to be June of 2015, which is going to dramatically impact hundreds, if not thousands of cases that are presently before the court, all types of overcharge cases in which tenants were, were under the impression that they were going to be able to go back and cite to rent overcharges or uh, questions in rental history that might have existed in the year 2000, 1984, whatever year it was. Now the court said, no, whatever the rent charged as of 2015, plus applicable increases, that is going to be the new rent. Um, it also really set a, a heightened standard in, in relation to how a tenant can make out a fraud claim. It really reset the way courts are going to need to view trouble damages claims. It's going to have to be a conscious, uh, conscious and um, intentional uh, act to uh, provide a false rent. Uh, whereas before uh, courts were sort of willy-nilly just imposing trouble damages, now it's going to be a heightened standard. It also impacted in terms of rent registrations, whereas rent registrations before, if you didn't file them, there would be a freezing of the rent. Now the court made it very clear that those registrations don't really impact upon the determinations of overcharges. It impacts upon collectible rent, uh, but not rent overcharges. Um, I'm not, not really doing justice um, to the decision. It was 110 pages. It was probably the longest, certainly the longest decision I've ever seen come out of the court. I've never seen such a divided court in the language it used. It used, it castigated the legislature in many portions of the decision. And we do plan on doing a webinar in the near future with Chip and NICLA, um, spending uh, adequate time to go over the decisions and the constitutional implications and how it's going to impact pending lawsuits that are challenging the constitutionality of the new law. And Ativ, while you were uh, explaining all that, someone sent over the question, can that decision be appealed? Um, I know that one of the tenants council um, in the law journal said that they were going to seek to appeal to the United States Supreme Court. The odds of the Supreme Court accepting that minimal to none. I think this is absolutely a final decision. All right, great. Well, you know what? This, uh, the timing has been perfect. I don't know. Does anyone else have anything to speak on that before we begin to end? No. Okay. So our time is drawing to a close, and I want to thank all the panelists for being here. Uh, Nativ, Jason, Eli, Carmelo, Brian, Matt. Again, thank you so much to Amanda and Jill and Victoria and Craig. And Craig, you did a great job curating questions. And uh, I just want to ask one more question. Any of you that feel that you want to give an answer to this? This is unparalleled, what we've experienced over the last, you know, say, 90 days and certainly the last 30 days. And uh, what, what, have you, what have you learned or noticed, okay, in your own business uh, that at this point you would change? And what would you do going forward? based on everything that you've experienced in this pandemic? I think, you know, speaking for me, I'm a developer, and so I feel, you know, mostly on a day-in and day-out basis, I'm trying to you know, measure risk and make decisions based on risk profile. 
Um, this was something that nobody could have really anticipated. And I think that's something that you just need to keep in the back of your mind, right? That there's really no way to perfectly price risk. Um, you know, we can put together 30 page Excel models or do a deal on the back of an envelope. Um, whether it's court cases that have come to shock us lately, whether it was the rent laws uh, in 2019, recent Article 78 cases um, as applied to rezoning. I mean, it's just been a very volatile time. And I think that going forward, um, you get lulled in good markets into thinking that you've learned how to price risk. But I think this you know, pandemic, recent changes in legislation um, have sort of taught us that whatever you think you're pricing for risk, you know, it's always good to be operating with some level of a cushion because the tide does go out. Um, and, you know, that's what Warren Buffett says, right? When the tide goes out, you find out who's been skinny dipping. And so, you know, I think what I've learned going forward is no matter what you think you've uh, estimated as your risk, there are always going to be unknowns. And uh, you can easily get lulled into thinking that all you're looking at is, you know, the economics of a deal. But I think the last year have taught us that you know, whether it's legislative, judicial, global macro events, all impact real estate um, at a very micro level. Anybody else? What would we do differently? I'd like to look at it in reverse and it's more like, well, what would I like to do the same? And I can tell you what I miss most. And, you know, people are talking by virtue of the fact that everyone's on their virtual tools now and using Zoom or Skype. Do we really need the real estate that we once had and having all the offices we had? And do we really need these offices? Can everyone just work from home? I can tell you from my own personal, from my own personal experience, uh, I believe humans to be social animals. And I can't tell you how much I miss working in the office and interacting with all the people that we do in the office. And so while we may do things differently, I really look forward to doing things quite the same in the way they were and having those individuals' interactions and going back to normal life and how much I appreciate what we what we had before. And um, hopefully we can take away that we need to count our blessings every day. I, I think also on, on our, and I echo what both of you guys said, and I think for us it's it's just seeing who steps up you know, when in the time of crisis, the team, how they come together. And, you know, for us, people had to work from home. It's been almost three weeks now where a good part of our team is already working remotely. And, you know, we haven't received any complaints from residents or from clients that there's been a drop in service. So I think for us, it was really learning uh, what our team could do and kind of appreciating that. Um, and that we could still give the same level of service to our, uh, to our boards, you know, regardless of the situation and to our clients. But what I would say, like Nativ said, you know, not, nothing replaces the team meetings, the, you know, their interaction at the property, meeting with tenants, kind of creating those relationships. Um, so th those are the things that obviously we miss. Um, but, you know, somebody, somebody once said to me that, especially in New York, you know, we're, uh, we're the last ones in the toilets and the first one out whenever there's an issue. Yep. So I feel strongly about that. I think that, you know, we'll, we'll come through this together as a, as a city and as a country and world, and we'll, uh, we'll be better for it. We're, we're, you know, every company will kind of adapt to it. Some people will learn from it. Some people might change their ways. Um, but real estate's important where, you know, where we provide housing for people. Um, we will provide a place for people to work. And, it, you know, in my opinion, we're, we're going to come back stronger than we went out. And I agree with that. We're all going to get through this together. Uh, 
Wow, that was fantastic. It was really amazing. Uh, just so everyone knows that attended, we're going to send you an email with a link to a replay if you want to watch it again uh, to get some of the points that maybe you might have missed. Uh, and that'll probably happen in the next 24 hours or so. Uh, thank you, everyone who attended. Thank you again to the panelists. And uh, hey, big group virtual hug. All right? We're going to get through this together. And there you have it. Until next time. So thank long, you, everybody. Everyone. Thanks, and have everyone. a wonderful afternoon. Thanks, all. Everyone, thank you for listening. I hope you gathered the important information that you need to get you thinking about the next steps you can take to move forward. Eventually, we all together will get past this. If you would like to contact any of the panelists that you heard today, go to the show notes on my website or the show notes in your podcast app and all their contact information will be there. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak. Please subscribe. You can do so on the website. Just go to the podcast page and there is an opt-in option on the top of the page or search for Realty Speak on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for an iPhone. Find it, install it, open it, hit subscribe, and you're in. And please help Realty Speak grow by sharing the show with others. From the website player, just click share and choose your preferred social media platform. Or you can just copy the URL and email it to whoever it is you'd like. And of course, if you'd like to talk about purchasing, selling, or financing investment real estate, access past episodes, or just chat, you can contact me directly via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.